You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Rules of Interpretation. Interpretation is key. Philip Edwards will teach how to keep the sermon in harmony with the Bible. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Good evening, welcome again to our third uh, week on preaching, uh, understanding what preaching is, and to some extent from some of the students practicing uh, preaching themselves. We had a couple last week that came and uh, they did an excellent job. They really did, because to preach something in five minutes is quite a challenge, because it gives you, you've got to almost get right into what you're saying, and you've got to say everything quite succinctly and then bring it to an end. So uh, quite a challenge, but both of them did a fantastic job. We'll repeat that again this week. We've got a couple more students that want to do that. We'll have one in the first lesson and one then in the second. I'd say to the speakers, don't be nervous. That's easy to say, isn't it, as they sit there uh, preparing. Uh, Yeah, don't be nervous, and I'm sure once you get here, uh, you won't be. I'll say to the class members, remember, you're sort of analysing in a way, because that's part of the the study, uh, that you're looking for certain things, you're... Uh, you're not looking to criticise because we're not going to do that, but you're looking for those three ingredients. You're looking for instruction, persuasion and motivation. Uh, what am I being told? What am I learning from what's being said to me? How much of the scriptures are they pointing out to me? Uh, with the persuasion, how much is this affecting my heart? Uh, you know, the, the sort of words that are used, the illustrations that are used, and then finally, am I moved to some sort of action at the end, if it's that sort of message. You could make a few notes if you like to answer uh, the questions. You also keep your ears open while they're uh, sharing their message with you. Look, you're looking for clarity, uh, that they, they use the right words, they pick the right words to give you understanding. It's got to be interesting. Uh, It's got to be uh, evocative, the language that they use, that they draw you into whatever's going on. Energy needs to be relatively high. I know it depends on the subject that you're communicating and somewhere your emotion needs to come into this. They need to feel your heart and know your heart. Before we do that, I need to finish off something that I never completed last week and then we'll uh, look at one of these. We looked at preparing the sermon, that's where we finished last week, and if you remember, I looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we looked at verses 1 to 10, where we took a passage and we we said how we would perhaps preach from this particular passage. Uh, This week, I want to look at what it is to choose a topic and how we would prepare a sermon from a topic as opposed to a passage. Let's just pray, though, before we... Uh, bring a study this evening. Heavenly Father, um, we enjoy coming around your word because your word is so precious. It's, it's caused us to be born again. It's caused us to live this completely different life that you've called us to. It's, it's saved us, as it were, from we don't know what, where our lives would have ended up. And we just uh, love to study it and to understand it and know it. And Lord, we pray that you'll reveal things to our heart tonight. Excite us, Lord, with what we hear. And as we gather around it, it'll be you ministering by your spirit into our lives. We give ourselves to understand and to listen and to know in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. Choosing a topic then, we said that... um, You could either take a passage of scripture like we did and just preach on that, uh, break it down, uh, uh, see how it's structured, because don't forget the one who wrote this is the Holy Spirit. He's very clever, isn't he? The way he uh, has constructed uh, the books, how he's put them together, how you see his his voice running through the whole of scripture and how he... uh, 
fashions and makes things that we can take from this and deliver it in that way, just whole passages. You might want to teach, though, or preach on a topic, a theme. Um, there's a lot that you could choose. You could choose, well, everything that pertains to life you can preach on. You'll find something in this book about it. Sometimes there's a lot about a particular thing. Sometimes there's only just one or two verses that can direct us in what God is thinking. You might want to talk about finance or marriage or divorce, uh, about generosity, about healing. So if we just take two of these, say we took divorce and healing. A divorce, there's very few scriptures in the Bible. Just one or two in the Old Testament referring to the hardness of people's hearts and how God permitted it, but he didn't ever really want it. When we come into the New Testament, we know that Jesus makes a few comments. Paul says a little bit, and that's it. So if we were preparing a message, we would sit and gather all the different verses relating to the subject. If the subject is something of a theme that carries all the way through scripture, like healing, you could never collect all the verses about healing. You would, have to, you would get tired before you collected them all because it's a theme, a strong theme that runs all the way through. Same with faith. Faith runs all the way through, a strong theme. Love is another one, a strong theme that you couldn't capture all the verses pertaining to that. So I picked on healing, okay, and said how I would uh, handle this particular subject. As I said, there's so many verses, so I might just collect a few together to see if God would speak to me and direct me perhaps on what part of healing he would want me to deal with, to actually speak about. Maybe if in the position of being a pastor or a teacher in a course, you might decide to, to teach the subject over four, five or six weeks. So you start and you can break the whole subject up into a number of lessons or studies and then present one built on another each week until you've finished it. I just jotted down here a couple of verses pertaining to healing because we read it all through scripture. We find it in Exodus where God declares himself the healer, remember? I am the Lord, he says, that healeth thee. What a great statement so early on in the Bible. Then he, uh, we read about what happens when we're sick and we're waiting to be healed. The scriptures related to that. In Deuteronomy, remember, that's the passage that has the covenant promises of God where he says, if you do this, I'll do that. I will do that. Of course, one of them is if you walk before me and keep my, my laws and my commands, then no sickness will come near your home or your house. All of these scriptures, we have to take them all in to get something of the idea of God, the character of God, and what God overall thinks about this subject. Uh, David says a lot, and so do the other psalmists, about healing. Uh, what to do when we get sick. Uh, we're healed sometimes, but not by miracles. Sometimes we just get better when it was thought we never would get better. And so we see God healing in that way. Then we get that very popular psalm that came out due to the uh, pandemic that hit the country member, Psalm 91. If we dwell uh, under the arms of God, as it were, under his, his wings, no pestilence will come near our house, no disease would come near us. In Psalm 103, it says, God is a saviour and a healer. Uh, the very one who saves you is the very one who heals you, he says. Psalm 107, how God heals by sending his word. He sent his word and he healed them. And then various other ways. It says in Proverbs that through reading his word, we can be healed. In Mark, it says, through the laying on of hands, we receive healing. In James, it says, if we are anointed with oil, it's a type of the Spirit. And as we put our faith in what God is doing, we're healed. And 1 Corinthians, it finishes with the supernatural gifts of healing. So much, and this is only just a handful, uh, all the way through Scripture. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. The church divides itself, doesn't it? God heals today, or God doesn't heal today. We would all love to see more healings today, I'm sure. But um, it's, it's for us to apply ourselves to the scriptures 
uh, if we see God promising something and to ask, if it's not there, why isn't it there? As students, we should do this. We shouldn't just accept things, but dig a little bit and see if God won't show us why not. So if there is so many aspects regarding a topic, a theme, you might just want to pick one particular part of it. Or you might just want to take uh, a part of the journey of healing and just link a few of the themes together. Start with the character of God, move on to some examples, and then move into the New Testament. So you, you build ideas. So you're not working from one passage of Scripture, but you're jumping here and jumping there and trying to pull it together. You have to be more strict with yourself because there are rules to obey when you're trying to explain scriptures, when you're studying to teach people. Sometimes we take liberties with scriptures, we stretch them. We, we say things that they don't really say. We take them out of context. We do all sorts of naughty things to try and make them fit into perhaps what we want them to say. We're going to have a look at that a bit later. Some of the rules that govern our interpretation of scripture. It sounds a bit technical, but I think you'll enjoy it when we get to it. As I said, it's a long subject. You could teach it in a series. Um, remember, the theme is the same. Instructing people, appealing to their mind. The way that they think, you want to take the scripture and it starts to illuminate our understanding. Then you want to do something with the heart. You want to persuade people, this is what God is like. Not just understand him academically, but God is real. He is in one's experience. He's in one's life. He is real to us. Like he was talking to you, telling you a story himself about, about what he's like. And then to be motivated. Uh, every sermon about healing should either motivate you to trust God more for your healing, that when you're sick to, to ask someone to pray for you, to stand on the word. To, so, so the first thing we do, not the last, is look to God that he will be the healer. I am the Lord that healeth thee. That's the first thing. That motivates us if we're sick. And if not, then to be people who are prepared to pray for the sick we all need to be motivated to be able to reach out to people. So you might hear this on a Sunday, then the first thing you do on a Monday morning is someone tells you about some complaint that they have. You either let it go past or you say, would you like me to pray for you? They think they, you mean by that when they go home, they might say a little prayer by the side of their beds. But before they can say anything else, you just clap your hands on them and start to pray for them, you see. You start to put this stuff into practice because it's all right knowing it. It's all right even believing it. But really, if we're not going to do it, you haven't really believed it. You've given something mental assent. God is the healer. Jesus healed the sick. He wants us to heal the sick. And now here's someone standing right in front of me, and I bottled it again. It, it's amazing how God sets those sorts of things up for you. So, tremendous. Take opportunities when the Word of God comes to, to launch out and make it a reality in your life. Because that's how God wants to teach us. He wants to teach us through our understanding, through our hearts, but then through our experience. Everything that we learn should be practical in the Christian life. If it's merely academic, you know what will happen. Give it a day or two, you'll have forgotten it completely. Only what we put into practice becomes a reality. If you're going to teach on healing, call the sick forward. Call the sick forward every time. Do it. If there's anything you can do to reinforce your teaching in a practical, physical way, you must do it. You should do it. And uh, of course, I know when we start off, we might think, I've never prayed for anyone, seen anyone get healed, but you just step out there because it's not about you. It's about God working or moving on his words. And all it sometimes takes is fearful people to step out and God just moves powerfully in that. So then the prayer becomes part of our teaching. That is the most wonderful part. They'll forget everything you've said if they see this person miraculously healed, it would just, you know, say, perhaps I better listen to that sermon again. Well, I wasn't really listening when they were saying it, but I saw something that was uh, exciting there going on. 
Okay, what I want to do now, I want to introduce our first student speaker this evening, and uh, it's a gentleman again first, and it's Edward. Right, well, um, last Sunday, it wasn't last Sunday, it was about 10 days ago actually, um, we were listening to Darren's talk on Galatians 5, and, uh, and I have to admit there was a bit at the end as he was talking about application, I did not understand what on earth he was talking about, and uh, I turned to Sarah and said to Said, said, said as such to Sarah and, uh, and said, you know, pity doesn't put a few, um, a few um, uh, explanations in there for demos like me. And, uh, and as, I, as I said it, I thought, I heard God saying, well, you think you can do any better? And uh, at first I thought, uh, at first I thought maybe, um, maybe this was what the, the prompt was that Phil had been talking about that we might get for this particular slot on a, on a Monday and then I thought no 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 I don't really understand the passage and uh, and actually five minutes I can't do it in five minutes so uh, so I put that out of the window and I, I was uh, but I was just thinking that uh, that actually uh, what was that passage all about it was all about grace and I thought I thought oh, what I'll do is I'll talk about uh, the grace of God in relation to the to the gospel and the reason I was thinking about that was because I was on a, I was on a, I was on a Bible course at Haywards Heath, and uh, and the guy who was teaching us suddenly in the middle of the morning he said, "Turn to the person on your left, and give him the gospel, or give her the gospel," and there must have been about twenty-five of us there, and uh, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. There were people there who'd been Christians all their lives, and they were much older than me, and. Uh, and we were all utterly useless. And so at that time, I, and we all admitted it, and so did the teacher. And at that time, I thought to myself, right, I really need, I really need to learn. I know the gospel, but I really need to actually be able to get it over to people in a cogent, confident uh, way. Um, so I thought that's what I'd try and do tonight. This, this uh, not quite what Phil wanted, but he's going to get it anyway. <laughs> so... Um, so, I'd be, I'd be um, I'm not absolutely sure that we all need to be great evangelists, actually. I think that, I think that, I think that we don't need to be J. Johns. I think that, as with everything else, actually, God is in there doing it for us. We just need to step up to the plate, and, uh, and the Spirit of God will be in, in there. I... I um, I, when I came to faith, it was at St. Helens Bishopsgate in the, in the city of London, and um, I went along to this, uh, this lunchtime talk. It was one of their courses run by a curate. And uh, it, was, it was great. It wasn't slick. It wasn't particularly persuasive. And indeed, there were bits in there I didn't really understand at all, like uh, the, the ravine with the cross across it, so I could walk across it and into the arms of Jesus. I couldn't get that. But there was a voice in my head saying, this is all true. This is all true. Believe it. And you've got to do something about it. And, uh, and so, I, so I've, been, I've been convinced that I don't need to be good. But I do need to be a bit, I do need to be a practice. So you're getting the practice. So the gospel, God's message to us all. Good news for all of us. Good news for all of us. And uh, listen up, anyone who hasn't, uh, who hasn't heard it before, because this might be the last time you hear it. God can not always his lengthy patience. Um, in short, the good news, as predicted by, uh, by a multitude of prophets uh, many years earlier, is that uh, Jesus, Son of God, came, came to earth, lived a perfect righteous life and died on a cross to pay the penalty for our, for our sin. He miraculously rose to life again so there is now no condemnation for those who believe in him. The good news runs all the way through the Bible. So there's stacks of it. Open it up and you'll find it pretty quickly. Here's an example. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So what's all this about? Let's start at the beginning. God created us 
to be with him in loving relationship, just, just like Adam and Eve in those, in those first days when they used to stroll in the garden with him. Quite, quite incredible picture, that is. However, it didn't take long before Adam and Eve uh, wanted to be gods themselves. They wanted, they, they wanted to make their own decisions about what was good and what was, what was evil. And this was when sin began and corrupted all of, all of humanity. Sin is turning our backs on, on God, rebelling against him and doing things our own way. That's ultimately why the world is in such a, such a mess. We separate ourselves from God, but actually he has to separate himself from, from us. As a holy God cannot associate with an unholy people. We're corrupted by sin, and the Bible says the penalty for sin is eternal death. And there's nothing that we, we ourselves, can do to avoid this outcome. Some might say if God is good, he'll overlook these occasional white lies and angry, angry thoughts. Or perhaps he'll take into account the good work that I do in the community, the money I give to the poor, and let me, let me into heaven anyway. But no, God is just, God, God is just, he can't do that. So what's the solution? Are we all going to hell? And by the way, hell, I think it seems like it's eternal life without God. Probably a lot worse than, uh, than you read in these books of little devils with pointy things they stick in you. It's far worse than that. God has sent Jesus... Uh, uh, sorry, start that bit again. It's, it, it's life without God with all the bad things and none of the good which, which God uh, provides for us. So actually, of course, the solution is provided by God. In his love and mercy, God sent his son Jesus to live the perfect righteous light, life. And he's the only one who could. He then, we, he then caused him to die a horrible death on the cross to atone for my sins and, and for yours. And because of his love, Jesus willingly paid this penalty, a penalty due to us for our rebellion. And God accepted this sacrifice by raising him from the dead and thereby proving that all he had said and done was true. Through all he has done, Jesus has made all things new for us. If we respond by repenting and turning away from what has gone before, by believing in him and receiving him as our saviour, life with Jesus can start now and last forever. But there is a cost. It's obedience and a life of discipleship. You need to be aware of this before you step in. For those here who know all these things, that's probably everybody. It might be worth saying that we don't outgrow our need for the gospel. It's uh, every day we can be strengthened by it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with big events like being told you're about to die tomorrow. I mean, you've only just, uh, you know, I, I was told I was going to die tomorrow. What a fantastic strengthening these verses, these verses are. You know, you read, you read them, don't you? For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. Amen. Well done, Edward. Well, after the break, after a little bit more teaching, we're going to have a lady come and... Uh, share her part. Rules then, I want to deal with the rules of interpretation because sometimes, as I said in the opening uh, statement, that some people take real liberties uh, about interpreting the scripture. And there are rules and we should really apply ourselves to them. Now, it's not always uh, when we preach, obviously there's a responsibility because Standing in a pulpit gives you, the person speaking, authority over other people. And people submit themselves to your authority. So there's a, a real dynamic going on here 
And so you want to be as truthful and as true to scripture as you possibly can be. But also when you're talking with a friend and it goes on to spiritual things, you also want to tell the truth. You don't want to take liberties with the scriptures and teach something else. So it's important that we interpret scripture accurately. In this lesson, what I want to do is to just point out a following rules of interpretation. Just, well, there'll be a few now and then we'll come back to them in the second half. It might sound a little bit technical, but it won't be. I assure you of that. We'll, it'll be really simple and uh, we'll work through them one by one. We have to interpret the text that we're looking at, the verse of scripture, the thing that we're quoting, in light of the context of the way in which it's written. I'm going to turn you to a passage in Colossians, and um, it's Colossians 2 and verse 21. It says this, Do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. It seems to be a verse that prohibits you from doing certain things. And if you preach from this one, trying to say to Christians there are certain things they mustn't do or touch or handle, you would be preaching completely out of context with these couple of verses. In fact, the quotation is, is, is putting forward the opposite of what you might be saying if you're being uh, preaching in a way of prohibiting people to live in a freedom, to, to live in the way that they want to live now. Let me read these verses to you and you'll understand exactly what I mean from verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. To put laws on yourself, the writer is saying, don't do it, don't ever do it. Don't ever say, I'm really going to be determined not to do that again. The first thing you'll do is fail. The only rule that you really want to keep is I will love the Lord my God with all my heart. If I fail to do that, I'll break all the rules. If I keep that one, I'll keep all the rules. That's what Jesus teaches. So the only rule that we nearly apply to ourselves is that I will be a loving person and I will love God. So be careful we don't take the whole meaning of something out of context and actually preach the very opposite. The second rule is we're to interpret a text in harmony with the teaching of the whole Bible. Again, you could read in the Bible nine cases where it says this. Then you find one where it appears to say the very opposite. So it's what you want to say. So you preach on this text, which looks perfectly all right, but in the context of the whole scripture, nine other verses said the opposite. You say, well, are there verses like that? Oh, you can be sure there are verses like that. You can preach anything you want out of this book and make it sound all right. That's why we have the rules. That's why you mustn't break them. That's why you have to apply them. Is um, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It can't do that. Sometimes things appear to be contradictions, but they're not. Listen to this verse in Luke 14 and 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who might preach that verse? Who might preach that in the context of which we've just read it here? We've pulled it out of the Bible and we've just presented it like that. See, if you were wanting to 
draw people into a cult, draw people away from their families, cause them to turn away from loved ones which might say, you're going in the wrong direction, come here. They would take this verse and preach just this verse as it was literal, as this is what it meant. It seems to assert that a disciple of Jesus must hate his near relatives. Otherwise, he can't be a true follower of Jesus Christ himself. But this is contrary to Scripture, isn't it? Scripture says the opposite all the way through. It says the opposite. We're to love our family. We're to love our, even our enemies. We're to find love, the love of God, to reach out to them. So this word hate, it's, it's really figurative. It's hyperbole. We're not meant to hate them. It really means that a disciple must be willing to utterly give up his home, his ties to his family and everything to follow Jesus. Not that he would hate them, but he would be able to sever himself from the ties of his family to follow the Lord. It wouldn't be something that would draw him back. Remember the man who came and said that he wanted to be a disciple of Jesus, but he said, I must go home and bury my father because he's very, very ill and when he's dead and buried, I'll come follow you. And he said, it sounds harsh, let the dead bury the dead. Come follow me, he said, come follow me. Jesus knew that if he was going to follow Jesus, his time was short. He was giving him the very best of advice because Jesus wasn't going to be around long and he would get the, the pleasure, the joy of being in close fellowship with him for that very restrictive time. I'll just do one more. The text must be interpreted in harmony with sound, systematic doctrine. They sort of sound the same, but they're not. Doctrine is formed after consulting the whole of Scripture. If you're going to come up with a doctrine, you have to have considered all of it to say this is a true and certain doctrine. Therefore, there shouldn't be a, just taking a single text that seems contrary to what is being or what has been established as doctrine. And don't forget, this doctrine that we have in the church is 2,000 years old. At the time of Christ, they didn't have much to go on, did they? They clung to the apostles' teaching. There was no Bible. They just had to listen intently to what the apostles were teaching them and, and try and get it right, try and remember exactly what they said and, and then share what they had. I'm sure many of them got it wrong. And we can read what John says and what Jude says. They definitely did get it wrong. They were still looking for a Messiah, even while John was still alive. And he was saying, no, no, he is the Messiah. Anyone who says that Jesus wasn't the Son of God and came in the flesh, he's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's an antichrist. So that was going on, but we're not in that pace. We've got 2,000 years of church history that has worked out doctrine for us. It's dotted every I, it's crossed every T, it's analysed everything again and again and again. Great minds, great preachers, great, great men of God, women of God have, have sweated over this to give us the doctrine that we have today. It doesn't make it infallible. But if you're going to argue with 2,000 years of established doctrine, go very carefully, please. Very, very, very carefully. I'm not saying they might have got it wrong. I'm not saying there might have been political pressure upon them. I'm not saying that certain uh, church authorities forced certain things through. Usually that stuff got worked out. But go very, very carefully. One teaching that's taught a lot today that we have to be very careful with and has worked its way in like this, a doctrine, is teaching on cheap grace. Cheap grace. What is this teaching on cheap grace? Well, grace wasn't cheap. John 3.16 tells us that. It says, for God so loved us, he gave us Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his own son. The most precious thing to him is what he gave away so that he could get us. So the grace of God didn't come cheap to God, but it can come very cheap to some Christians. 
They think once they've committed their lives to Jesus Christ and they've received Christ as their gift of salvation and God has acknowledged them as doing this, they're saved. And I've got to agree, they are saved. My theology teaches me that. But they think all they need to do now is perhaps turn up at church once a week. Not necessarily it costs them anything. They just get on with their life with this new set of understanding or beliefs. That's cheap grace. If this, if this gospel, if this Christianity isn't costing you something on a daily basis, it's cheap grace. And so we have to be very careful that we don't find ourselves slipping into something that we don't technically agree with, but we live in the experience of cheap grace, knowing that we're safe, we can just coast it in now. That's cheap grace. I'm going to call a halt there. Uh, we'll come back to some more of these after the break and to our student teaching us as well. So we'll have a little break there. Okay, welcome back. One or two more of these rules of interpretation of Scripture so we, we're sure that we're, we're being as truthful and as honest as we are to Scripture. A text should be taken literally unless it's obviously figurative or unless a literal interpretation would lead to an absurdity or an impossibility. So that challenges us a little bit is this figurative? Is this literal? How should I interpret what's being said here? The Bible was written in the common people's language. It was written for the average reader. It's not complex, it's not complicated, and we, we should know when it's figurative or we should know when it's literal. Over-spiritualising or allegorising it does violence to the Bible. And I've heard some real strange things taught out of passages of Scripture that, that had no meaning to that at all. I remember one lady teaching on communion and she took us her verse where Jesus turned the water into wine. And I thought, what are you doing? What, what, there's enough to teach on communion without going to this. Immediately I was put off because it had nothing to do with that. It was, she was just allegorizing something that had absolutely nothing to do with the communion. The, I'll point you to a couple of uh, verses of scripture, then uh, we're to decide, is this uh, figurative or literal? A couple from Genesis. In Genesis 1 and 3, it says this, And Jesus said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Is that literal or figurative? Hmm. That somehow out of the darkness God spoke. Well, God does speak. We know that from Scripture. He spoke from heaven over Jesus. Uh, Jesus spoke from heaven and people heard it. Sometimes they thought it was thunder. It says sometimes when Jesus speaks or God speaks, he speaks with a, a still small voice. In other places it says he thunders, he speaks loudly. So we could say, well, God definitely speaks. God said, let there be light. For me, and of course you make your own decisions like you do in all uh, biblical study, to me it's literal. I do believe somewhere in the history of mankind, God spoke before mankind was. He said, let there be light. And correspondingly, he said in each case, let there be, let there be. I believe that is literal. Let's go to Genesis 3 now and 24. It says, after he drove the man out, that is out of the Garden of Eden because he had sinned, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree. Literal or figurative? Well, we know the Garden of Eden was a literal place because 
the Bible describes its boundary to us, the rivers and what constituted the garden. They were driven away out of the garden, so this language talks of, and an angel was there to stop them coming in. I plumb for figurative. I don't think there was an angel placed anywhere, but what I do believe it means is that because of their sin and their fall, they were driven away from the presence of God, that God could no longer fellowship with them in the way that he did prior to the fall. And that figuratively speaking, there was something that kept them, Adam and Eve, away from God. To me, it's figurative. Do you think it was figurative? Or do you think there was an angel somewhere slashing his sword backwards and forwards to make sure they didn't come in? Well, you have to work that one out for yourself. So some of it is figurative and some of it is literal. Let's do one more. If possible, consult the original language as a help to interpretation. Hmm. I wouldn't expect you to simply uh, to do all of this work if it's simply talking to your friend about uh, Jesus Christ and what Christianity is to you. But if you want to study a bit deeper, you might say, well, I wonder what the original said. What did it say in the, uh, in the Greek or in the Hebrew? Or some would suggest it was written in Aramaic. We don't know. They, people argue about things all the time. What we mustn't do when we are preparing a message or a sermon is make independent translations of word passages unless you study the language. Uh, I've never studied Hebrew or Greek, so I would never go there. And you say, well, you don't have to, Phil. You just have to read what other people have said. But how do I know that's true? How do I know they haven't picked it up from someone else who wrote it and they weren't true? So you're really just copying hearsay about something. So be very careful. We would all love to know what the original Greek and Hebrew was. But there's, unless you've studied it, you'd, you'd never know. In sermons, there's no need to quote Greek, Greek or Hebrew because 99.9% .9 of the time, the people sitting in the audience don't know Greek or Hebrew anyway. It doesn't matter. Are you showing off because you, you think you could uh, say that you've, you, you knew some Greek and Hebrew? There's no need for it. Now, I think when you're studying at home, and you're doing all the work, you be as thoroughly researchful as you can with everything. I look at a sentence and I might look at it in three other Bibles and say, is it saying the same thing? Or how did they get this translation of this particular word? Hmm. We have to work hard. Is this verse actually meaning what it says? Or could it mean something else? The truth is, scores of passages in our Bible, they're not translatable. They're not literal. They're not what the original writer thought. It's a bit tricky. They're impossible to translate. I'll just give you one simple little illustration. Uh, Mark 1 and 41. It says this, Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand you say, Philip, surely there's no problem with that. Well, you look up in another uh, Bible, uh, the New American Standard or the King James Version or some other version, and I got this. Jesus was indignant. Well, how does indignant look like compassion? You go, well, to me, it's a completely different word. How did the translators get that? Well, it was hard to translate. I looked in another one and it says that Jesus was moved with pity. Well, pity is a bit more like compassion, but it's not compassion, it's different. Another one said that Jesus felt sorry. Well, feeling sorry is nothing like feeling indignant and it's nothing like compassion. So which is it? Which should it be? Do anyone know what the original was in the Greek? It is to have bowels 
yearning. Bowels yearning. What on earth does that mean? You see, there is no translation for bowels yearning. They couldn't put that in the Bible. You wouldn't have known what the, the author was talking about. Did he want to go to the toilet? Did he have a stomachache? What was this bowels yearning? Was he suffering from this, you know, intestinal sort of problem? So they've done their best. But the truth is, some words are just not translatable. And so, 99 times out of 100, they've done their best. But as I read what other much greater scholars than me, they've said, well, I've gone through the, the NIV and I found at least 50 errors that I'm not comfortable with. And then others say, well, then you should rely on the authorised. And they've gone there and they say, I found the same number of errors, not, not perhaps the same place, but an equal number of errors. See, often the translators are translating under the pressure of, of the day and the way people think at the day, and actually the language that is used at the day, and language changes all the time. And so we have to be very careful. Right, we're going to call a halt there, and uh, our second student this evening is going to come. Daphne, come and share with us. Um, when Phil mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago about asking God to for one word really of what to speak tonight i felt god dropped the word beloved into my heart and um yeah as far as you know that it is god it just seemed a good word to start looking and researching so over a couple of weeks i've been looking into the word and how often it's mentioned in scripture so the first example that sprung to mind was the baptism of jesus when John baptised him in the River Jordan. John the Baptist was a mighty prophet and highly revered in those days. But he said there was one coming who was mightier than him. And really, John shouldn't be baptising Jesus, but it was to fulfil scripture. So in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water... At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, or this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. So there Jesus is called beloved. It means he is completely, thoroughly and fully loved by God. It's a title of kingship and designation that Jesus fully pleased God. Because of his sinlessness and his thorough righteousness, Jesus, the beloved Son, is God's chosen King and Messiah, our Saviour. Nobody else could have fulfilled that role, God's beloved Son. And it was interesting because it's also called again at the Mount, beloved at the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 17, 5, he says, This is my, again, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus definitely is the beloved of the Father. And so I thought a bit more about a beloved son, um, a beloved king. So we all love King David, don't we? He's one of the prominent characters in the Old Testament, he was only a young boy of 16 when he was anointed by Samuel to later become king of Israel. Now, this is funny because Phil said not to use Hebrew or Greek, and <laughs> I've already made a mistake. David's name in Hebrew be means beloved or friend. And in 1 Samuel 16, 17, as Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, doesn't he? And he asks all the sons to, ask Jesse to bring his sons in front of him. And, G and God says, do not consider their appearance or their height, for I have rejected them. So God was speaking to Samuel all the time. No, it's not this one, it's not this one. And then Samuel's thinking, well, have you got any more sons? And... Um, Jesse said, yes, I've got um, a young son. He's in the field. He's only very young. He just looks after the sheep. But the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. He was the 
one that Jesse never thought would be considered. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in Acts 13, 22, it says, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. I will, he will do everything I want him to do. So he was the beloved. He loved God's law and he was obedient to God. As I said, man looks on the outward appearance, but look, God looked on David's heart. He was to be trusted even at a young age. He was beloved by God and beloved by the people, wasn't he? Saul was popular, but David was even more popular. So a beloved son, a beloved king, now a beloved disciple. Who do you think that could be? I can hear, whis I can hear whispers. So it's often said, isn't it, of John the disciple that he was the beloved of Jesus. He was near to Jesus at the Last Supper. He reclined at the table. I was reading today about, you know, they didn't sit on chairs around the table, they sort of went like this, didn't they? <laughs> like this. And um, he was the closest to Jesus. It says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to John and said, ask him what it means, what it means, who's going to betray Jesus. So he leans back and probably whispers in Jesus' ears, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus explains to him who it was. And when Jesus saw his mother there at the cross and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple John, here is your mother. <clears throat> From that time on, this disciple, I believe it was John, took her into his home. He was also one of the first there at the empty tomb, along with Mary Magdalene and Simon Peter. John says, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, John, the one Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, a beloved son, a beloved king, a beloved disciple. So how is this relevant to us today? How does this affect my life? All these people had amazing lives and amazing history, but how does that affect us? So I don't think I could have spoken on this without going to the Song of Songs, that strange book in the Bible, but that amazing romance of God's love for his church. And as you open that book, actually, all in my NIV, it's got beloved all over it. In every section, it's got beloved. And I was drawn to this verse. I am my beloved, beloveds, I am my lovers or beloved, and my lover is mine. So as children of God, we are brought with an everlasting, unconditional love, an amazing sacrifice. So we're in Christ, he is beloved, we're definitely his beloved children. A love that drives away all fears, doesn't it? When fear assails us, that love is amazing. And, and I threw up my own life. I've had to learn God's love and God's intimacy and it's an ongoing experience. So I pray for all of us that we would know the truth of being in the beloved. May we draw nearer to him, go deeper and recapture that first love experience. Thank you for listening. Okay, well done, excellent. Just a couple more of these um, interpreting rules for us. We are to uh, interpret the text comparing different types of Bibles. Um, I don't know how many Bibles you have on your shelf. Uh, as a student, you should have probably over the years collected a number. Uh, authorised version, the King James, Always got one still on my shelf, although I haven't used one to preach for a long, 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 long time. When I started preaching, it was only the authorised. I seem to moved over to the NIV. That seemed to be the most popular in churches. Probably the New American Standard Bible uh, is probably one of the most accurate uh, today that, that we could use. But a lot of people might use the Living Bible or the Amplified 
or um, a sort of a J.B. Phillips New Testament that was very popular in its time, very modern way of talking, although that's a bit old now. Again, as you pick up these different Bibles and you read a particular verse, you get the different uh, slants uh, that it might be uh, using. The trouble with the authorised, and some people will still today only use the authorised Bible, a lot of words have changed. There's a, a verse in Galatians 1 and 13 says, For you have heard of my conversation. We go, well, I know what conversation is. It's when I talk to someone. But actually it doesn't mean that. It means a former way of life. Uh, it's how I used to live. That's, and so I would steer you right away from the authorised version because there are words there that are just historic, really, and you would need to interpret some of the words to know what they're driving at. But um, there we go, uh, different types there. You might want to get an interlinear, uh, a Greek interlinear New Testament where it's written in Greek and then they write the English over that and you can see it's literally, it's, it doesn't make sense, obviously, because it's just a transliteration of Greek and because you have to move it around a bit. But sometimes it's just helpful to use uh, these different things. The seventh rule I have is that we're to consult parallel passages of Scripture. Scripture is the best thing to interpret Scripture. So if you find something that you're not sure about, Find a parallel passage that is talking about the same thing and it can give you insight in what that passage is meaning. There's, there's also some uh, apparent contradictions with different things, but most ethical principles they carry throughout Scripture. Some commands and prohibitions are only local and temporary in the Bible, so be very careful. Other uh, passages of scripture, if it's a rule, it's meant to carry all the way through, because some things that happened in the Old Testament, they stopped at the cross. They never carried on past the cross. If we read some of those Old Testament laws uh, from Leviticus, Leviticus 19.19, 19, do not wear clothing warning, uh, woven by two kinds of material. We wouldn't do that today, wouldn't even consider that. There's many stuff like that that's it's not relevant today. Uh, but if there is something that is relevant, we can check it out from other places in the Bible to see how relevant it is. Uh, the last little rule I have uh, is to consult a good commentary, but don't let the commentaries dictate to you the message that God wants you to preach. They're only ever helpful. There's two types of commentaries. There's devotional commentaries where very skillful writers and uh, devout people have, have taken the whole passage, as it were, or the whole book, and they have explained it very, very well. And so you might read a passage and have one or two of these. Uh, a writer writing about a particular passage you want to preach on, what did he think that it was saying? Or what did this person think it was saying? So they're like devotional commentaries. They have taken a book and they have commentated all the way through. That's the first type. The other type is exegesical commentaries, usually written by real biblical scholars. Um, and they're conversant with theology and the original language. Now, as we said before, they can, they're not infallible because they're so scholarly and bright, but their opinions need to be considered. So we need, if we're going to preach, a whole collection of books. Now, I know it's all modern and computers, but I'm so old-fashioned that I still have to have books, all these books, and um, I love to look at them and to open them up and to discover what it is, what the truth of it is. I want to preach the truth. I don't want to preach just something that has come into my head. And, uh, and so you wrestle over some scriptures because you're thinking, oh, does it really mean that? 
and you look at the, what this person says and what that person says and what the words actually mean and sometimes you dig such a big hole for yourself you wonder whether you'll ever get out of it and decide to go and preach something else anyway because you're getting in a real mess but I found if you battle on and battle on and battle on you'll come out with something I'm not saying it's perfectly true but something you're comfortable with and happy with in yourself but in all preparation you're dependent upon the Holy Spirit. You pray and say, Holy Spirit, help me. You know the audience. You know what this really means. And I want to preach it to the best of my ability that the people who hear are moved on in Christ. They understand something a bit more. Help me to do that. That brings us to a conclusion this evening, so thank you, and we'll come back next week. We have two more, there might be three, we'll see. There's at least two more people that we're going to, uh, students, they're going to share a message with you, and uh, I'll conclude our teaching on preaching. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our last lesson in the preaching module. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation to support the ministry. Also, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can do so by going to Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry a living legacy.